Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 39, Agathocles of Syracuse, Tyrant and King. After almost 40 episodes of the Hellenistic Age podcast, it's quite surprising that I have yet to discuss the island of Sicily and the tyrants who dominated the Greek city of Syracuse. While I did make reference to the adventures of Pyrrhus of Epirus in his attempts to conquer Sicily in between his campaigns against the Roman Republic, for the most part we have stuck largely to the events of the Eastern Mediterranean. Though Hellenistic kings and queens have been the focus of our narrative, in Sicily there was the tradition of the tyrants, and during the early period of Hellenistic history, no tyrant was more ambitious than Agathocles, known also as Agathocles of Syracuse, who acted as tyrant and king of Sicily for almost 30 years as he would bow to the likes of Carthage in an attempt to make himself the Alexander of the West. In the first of many episodes focusing on the affairs of the central and western Mediterranean during the Hellenistic period, I wish to give more background detail on the island of Sicily and the Greeks of Syracuse, which would play an incredibly important role in the histories of the Roman Republic and Carthage alike. In order to better understand Agathocles' career, we need to better understand the geopolitical situation that was Sicily in the 4th century BC. Since the 8th century, the largest island in the Mediterranean at the very southernmost point of the boot of Italy had been subject to considerable Greek colonization efforts, attracted to the prodigious natural fertility of the land itself that would make it one of the few breadbaskets of the Mediterranean world, along with Egypt and the Black Sea. Its position made it a natural stopping point for trade routes for both Africa and Europe, oftentimes acting as a stepping stone between the two continents. The foremost Greek city was known as Syracuse, originally a Corinthian colony that soon became the center of all maritime and economic activity thanks to its suitable location for defense and trading, and it was easily among the wealthiest cities in the Greek-speaking world, second only to classical Athens in terms of its population. In lieu of democratic or oligarchic institutions, the predominant political structure of Syracuse and the other Greek Sicilian cities was centered around the tyrant. This is a word that needs some clarification, as the modern English connotation for tyrant is generally negative and reserved for despotic and cruel regimes headed by a single figure. The Greek word tyrannos means rule of one, a system of government created by some sort of strongman, usually a demagogue nobleman, someone with access to a large body of private troops, or some combination in between. These tyrants would capitalize on a failing government and overthrow it with either peaceful measures or by force, with or without the consent of the city's citizens. But for the most part, these tyrants were a response to the conflict between the classes, generally between the entrenched aristocracy and the up-and-coming wealthy. Tyrants like Kypsilis of Corinth, and Pisistratus of Athens were respected for their moderation of rule and expansion of political enfranchisement, but others such as Apollodorus of Cassandrea were reviled for their despotism, selfishness, and cruelty, so it's understandable why there would be such a confusion as to the meaning of tyranny. In the 7th and 6th centuries, tyrants became increasingly prevalent throughout the Greek-speaking world, as the rise of the upper middle class and wealthy hoplite farmers led to such conflicts. But in the case of Syracuse, tyrants became the entrenched form of government for numerous reasons. 
Firstly, like the dictator in the Roman Republic, handing the control of the government to one person provides a great opportunity for political reform and a sense of direction during times of crisis. Second, Syracuse was always on the alert for military action, because the Greeks weren't the only kids on the Sicilian block, so to speak. There were also the native inhabitants of Sicily, chief among them referred to by the Greeks as the Sicils or Sicoloi, hence where this name Sicily is derived from. The Sicils and the various other indigenous groups were largely assimilated into Magna Graecia and the Greek colonies by the 4th century via conquest and cultural exchange. The far more dangerous and greater rival would be the likes of the Phoenician city-state of Carthage. Since the 8th century, Carthaginian trading and colonial ventures would prosper on the western portion of the island, understandable given that it's the part closest to North Africa. Though trade would be commonplace, competition would inevitably lead to conflict and outright declarations of war between the Carthaginians and Greeks with explosive results. In approximately 483 BC, Carthage would be brought into the struggle between the Ionian and Doric-speaking Greeks, the latter becoming the dominant force in Sicily thanks to aggressive colonization efforts by Corinth, and one of the Doric tyrants cried calling his Carthaginian guest friends to intervene, though to no success. At what would be called the Battle of Himera in 480, the Greek force led by the tyrant of Syracuse Gilon utterly destroyed the Carthaginian army, coincidentally on the same day as the Battle of Salamis between Athens and Persia, at least according to tradition. The Carthaginians were kowtowed into paying huge indemnities and giving up significant territorial claims, greatly enriching the coffers of Syracuse, who scored a huge propaganda boost by pushing the narrative of a Carthaginian-Persian conspiracy to their fellow Greeks. The defeat at Himera didn't entirely remove the Carthaginian presence from the island, and over the next 70 years they recovered, before the aggressive Maganid family dominated Carthage's foreign policy, and continuous wars would be fought between the Greeks of Syracuse and Carthaginians for the next 50 years. At this point, I am just blazing through details of a lot of wars and events, so if you're interested in the Greco-Punic Wars, I recommend author Jeffrey Champion's two-volume work on the tyrants of Syracuse, which I have used extensively in my research. But the important point is that tyranny remains so attractive and ingrained in Greek Sicily because of this ever-present threat of the Carthaginians and by other Greeks, whether they were from Magna Graecia, aka Greater Greece in Sicily and southern Italy, or from the mainland, as was the case during the Athenian invasion of Sicily during the Peloponnesian War. This attraction to despotism was not universal, however. Attempts to turn the tyranny into a monarchy did not prove to be totally successful, as the dynasty of the tyrant Dionysius only spanned two generations, even with the successes against the Carthaginians that bolted the power of Syracuse. One nobleman in particular named Timoleon of Corinth was renowned as a stalwart defender against the abuses of power during the middle of the 4th century, even going so far as to kill his own brother, who had set himself up as a despot in Corinth. When the threat of Carthaginian invasion and the quasi-civil war between the Syracusians and the deposed tyrant Dionysius II had troubled Greek Sicily, Timoleon was the man who answered the call when the Sicilian Greeks begged for aid from their mother city. In 344 BC, with a hand-raised army of about 700 mercenaries, Timoleon managed to drive out the Carthaginians, who believed that the instability of the region made it susceptible for reconquest. But Timoleon proved to be more competent than they were looking for, and for four years the two powers went back and forth before the Greeks managed to smash the Carthaginian army to great effect, 
and the treaty signed in 338 effectively bisected the island into western and eastern portions, the former belonging to the Carthaginians and the latter belonging to the Greeks. For the moment, Timolean's domination of Sicilian politics had altogether eliminated the autocracy of the tyrants in the vast majority of the cities. While scholars would be tempted to say Timolean reintroduced a strict democracy back into Syracuse, it probably would be more accurate to say that the political enfranchisement of the Sicilian Greeks had expanded under a more temperate oligarchy with democratic elements and a brand new constitution. This new enfranchisement and the offer of citizenship to new Greek immigrants attracted tens of thousands of settlers, providing a measure of peace and revitalization of the Sicilian economy that would allow for the flourishing of Syracuse and its peoples. Timolean would die a hero in roughly 336-335 BC, but lingering problems still remained. The decades of non-stop Greco-Punic warfare had essentially amounted to what Professor Richard Miles refers to as a bloody status quo. Neither the Carthaginians nor the Greeks were able to decisively push one or the other out of Sicily, and the leading powers of both sides and the mercenaries who flocked from across the Mediterranean were enriched by the plunder and counter-plundering of the wealthy cities. In addition, serious social stratification between the rich and poor remained a major issue despite Timolean's attempts to provide greater enfranchisement, and though the tyrants were seemingly out of the picture, this very stratification could provide an excellent opportunity for any power-hungry official to re-establish another tyranny. It just so happens that while Alexander the Great was out conquering the Persian Empire and died the most heroic figure in the Greek world, in Sicily, a young man had been nursing his ambition to not only take over Sicily, but to create his own Mediterranean kingdom. Enter Agathocles. Hello everyone, my name is Daniel Healy, and I'm the host of the Mari Nostrum podcast. In the Mari Nostrum podcast, we are following the history of ancient Rome, from its very humble mythical origins, to its dominance of the entire Mediterranean Sea and beyond, right through to the collapse of the Western Empire. If you'd like to join us on this journey, you can find us on a number of platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Of course, I'd be delighted if you joined us on our journey. And with that said, I'll now hand you over to Derek for your regular episode of the Hellenistic Age podcast. The sources on Agathocles of Syracuse vary dramatically in their interpretation. Our best account comes from Diodorus's Library of History, which chronicled both Agathocles' life and Sicilian history as a whole, probably because Diodorus was a native of Sicily. Hence his full name, Diodorus Siculus, or Diodorus of Sicily. Diodorus's account was based upon memoirs and histories penned by Agathocles' contemporaries, and most of them were positively inclined, unsurprising considering that one of the writers was Agathocles' brother. In contrast, Diodorus also relied on one particularly negative writer named Timaeus, a disgruntled Syracusan historian who was notorious for his smear campaigns of anyone he didn't particularly care for and allegedly sought to ruin Agathocles' reputation due to the man exiling him from the city. Deciphering through some of the blatant propaganda of the pro-Agathoclean writers and the smearing of Timaeus makes it challenging to piece together the man's early origins, but there is a general account we can follow. According to both, Agathocles was born in the year 361 in the city of Thermae in northern Sicily, a son of a potter named Carcinus and an unknown woman of either Carthaginian or native Sicilian descent. Carcinus was an exile of Regium, 
having moved to Thermae in the middle of the no-man's land that frequently passed back and forth between Greek and Carthaginian hands. According to Diodorus, Carcinus was uneasy about his wife's pregnancy, and later abandoned the newly born Agathocles to die after a prophecy foretold of the terrible consequences that his son's career would have on the whole of Sicily. Secretly rescued by his mother, and placed in the care of a maternal uncle, Agathocles grew up as the handsomest, bravest, and strongest of all the youths in the area, compelling Carcinus to learn of his son's survival and reclaim him as his own. This whole story is very stereotypical, as prophecies leading to abandoned children who grew up poor while still oozing noble characteristics is part and parcel of many historical recountings, such as Herodotus's tale of Cyrus the Great and Livy's story of Romulus and Remus. Much of Agathocles' youth would be spent in Thermae, apparently learning the pottery trade. But more than likely, what was meant was his father owned some sort of pottery production facility, because, as many authors point out, the family's increased wealth would explain much of Agathocles' easy mobility among the upper classes, and his smooth entrance into Syracusean politics that would not otherwise be available to a simple pot maker. The mere potter explanation was most likely a propaganda tool used to illustrate how successful Agathocles was, as later in life, he allegedly would like to show off to young men by placing a clay goblet next to a golden one, claiming that while he used to make the former, through his personal valor and hard work, he now created the latter. By the age of 18, the family moved to Syracuse due to Timoleon's victory over the Carthaginians and the generous offer of citizenship to all that apply. Though Carcinus would soon pass away, Agathocles would begin to make his way up the social ladder by attracting the amorous attentions of one Damas, a nobleman who began to lavish Agathocles with gifts and money. Based on Diodorus's account, Agathocles was engaged in a sexual relationship between an older man and a youth that was not uncommon in the Greek world, but the epitome of Justin claims that he was no better than a prostitute, eager and willing to become the sugar baby of any willing nobleman who so much as feigned interest. Once Damas died, Agathocles would marry his former lover's widow, thus inheriting the wealth that Damas left behind, and he soon became among the wealthiest men in all of Syracuse. While we lack much in the way of information regarding his early career, Agathocles was proving that he was a talented military officer and commander, notorious for his strength and the huge weight of his armor while he served as a footman in the armies of Timoleon, and for his services he was promoted to the rank of Chiliarch at the head of a thousand men by Damas during a campaign against the city of Akragas, modern Agrigentum. Clearly he had an aptitude for command and a good degree of charisma, but it wasn't a straight shot from exile to tyrant. Complications had emerged after Timoleon's death in the mid-330s, as the systems he had set up turned from a pseudo-democracy to a hardline oligarchy known as the 600, a body of 600 noblemen who dominated Syracusan and Sicilian politics in general, commanded by the unscrupulous pair known as Sostratus and Heraclides. Agathocles may have been involved with the 600, either as a full-fledged member or a supporter, but the relationship between he and Sostratus in particular would be completely severed when a cry for help arrived from the Greek city of Croton in southern Italy. Under pressure from the Italian Brutii tribe, the people of Croton sought military assistance, and so an expedition was sent with the Gathicles in tow. Sostratus and Heraclides were given command in addition to a junior position to Agathocles' brother, Antandrus. Despite his bravery and success leading against the barbarians, his pride was severely wounded by the fact he was never given the position of a general that he believed he deserved, and in Agathocles' eyes, Sostratus was the main culprit behind it. 
This bitter resentment would lead Agathocles to switch his allegiance to the democratic movement in Syracuse, openly accusing Sistratus of attempting to overthrow the constitution of Timolean. Whether born out of spite or not, the accusation would prove to be true and cost Agathocles dearly. In a typical display of Syracusan politics, Sistratus managed to drive Agathocles into self-exile to Italy, while they proceeded to formally exile his friends and companions on dubious charges, while butchering those who remained, thus setting up the 600 as the masters of Syracuse. At perhaps the lowest point of his life, in roughly 330-329, Agathocles remained on the Italian mainland, biding his time to return to Sicily and reap his revenge. In the meanwhile, he had to content himself by mingling among the democratic crowds among the cities of Magna Graecia, serving as a mercenary commander or attempting to overthrow the tyrannies of a number of Italian cities. At one point, he abandoned an army to thwart another of Sostratus's military ventures, though Justin claims that he was merely acting as a brigand or a pirate and raided his own countrymen. But his aid in the defeat of Sostratus had resulted in the destabilization of the political authority of the 600, and by 322, these oligarchs were driven out of Syracuse, the Democratic Party once again managing to take power. Agathocles' reputation as a firebrand Democrat, both at home and abroad, had convinced the citizens to recall him from exile, though some would suggest that his championing of democracy was merely a facade hiding demagoguery. At the moment, such concerns needed to be laid to rest, as the 600 had allied themselves with the Carthaginians to kickstart Syracuse into a full-scale civil war. Agathocles would serve valiantly as both a common soldier and a commander, at one point nearly dying from several wounds he received while rescuing about 700 soldiers in a boxed attack on a city of Gila. But during most of the war, we don't have any indication that he was granted a high-ranking command position like a general. Syracuse was struggling to hold it together, as the extreme Democrats whom Agathocles had associated himself with were demanding legislature that would call for the redistribution of land to the common people, which naturally infuriated any remaining wealthy Syracusians who allied with the Democrats. Like with Timolean, Syracuse called for a backup arbitrator from Corinth, a man known as Acastorides, who immediately seemed not to get along with Agathocles. Getting along might be an understatement, as Acastorides launched a full-blown investigation under the belief that Agathocles had attempted a coup, going so far as to torture his closest associates in order to extract a confession, and only their steadfast loyalty prevented Agathocles from being put to the sword. We know very little about this alleged coup, but based upon his later behavior, it would not be surprising if Agathocles was involved in some sort of plot with the extreme democrats, but nothing is certain. Still, he was exiled from Syracuse once again on Acastorides' orders, as to facilitate a peace accord between the oligarchs and the moderate democrats, and, according to Diodorus, in order to make sure that there were no loose ends left behind when he returned to Corinth, Acastorides attempted to have Agathocles assassinated on the road, and would have succeeded had not Agathocles been cunning enough to dress up his slave who bore an unfortunate resemblance to him in order to take the hit either revealing his true colors, or deciding that he might as well become what people already accused him being, Agathocles sought to take power in Syracuse by force. His natural charisma and past success as a mercenary commander had attracted a band of followers to some degree. But Agathocles openly courted the native Sicilians, who had long felt oppressed by both the Greeks and the Carthaginians, and sought greater enfranchisement themselves by joining his armies. His stay at Morgantia in central Sicily allowed him to build up his power base, capturing the city of Leontini 
and eventually even attacking Syracuse outright. The Carthaginians immediately sent a relief force headed by their commander, Hamilcar, to deal with the threat to the oligarchs in the city. But in the display of political and diplomatic genius, Agathocles reputedly opened secret negotiations with Hamilcar, and according to Justin, the Carthaginian commander would allow Agathocles to continue his trek to take the city unmolested, and even offered 5,000 additional African mercenaries to assist him. While it seems mystifying how, coming from a weaker position, Agathocles could manage to get such extremely generous terms, it is clear that Agathocles was aware of the disunity of Carthage's military forces and its home government, a topic which will be discussed on our upcoming episode on Carthage itself. Part of the deal was that, in return for support in Syracuse, Agathocles would aid Hamilcar should he decide to enact his own takeover in Carthage, or any of the other Carthaginian-controlled cities. Whether Agathocles would have upheld his end of the bargain or not is unknown, as Hamilcar would die only a few years later, but given Agathocles' later willingness to renege on his promises, it's highly doubtful. My sources are conflicted on the exact timeline of events, some claiming that this negotiation took place later, while some dismisses an outright fabrication of Justin's, but for the sake of the narrative, we're just going to assume that it took place here. Agathocles' entrance into the city in 319 was agreed to on the grounds that he would make a sacred vow to uphold a democracy and not attempt to install himself into power. And make a vow he did, but for some reason, Agathocles was granted the independent position as a general over the areas he had previously conquered, technically legalizing his conquests and giving him personal command of over 3,000 extremely loyal soldiers, comprised of both native Sicilians and the poor who hated the 600. As expected, Clashes between Agathocles and the oligarchs would emerge, as he would openly court the disenfranchised classes and cover his tracks by associating with the moderate democrats. But by 316, Agathocles banded together his forces, under the presumption that they were going to deal with rebel forces in a nearby city. Assembling his forces in front of the gymnasium, the leaders of the 600 were invited along with 40 of their followers, so they could discuss the plans of the expedition. Instead of directing against enemies abroad, Agathocles made his move against his enemies at home. In front of his troops, Agathocles accused the 600 of plotting against his life for his championing of their liberty, driving the onlookers into a heated frenzy, whereupon they seized the present oligarchs and demanded justice for their crimes. Ordering their immediate execution, Agathocles unleashed his soldiers upon the remaining supporters of the oligarchs throughout the city. For two days, Syracuse was thrown into chaos as the 600 were slaughtered in their homes, their supporters either brutalized or killed outright, and even their families were shown no mercy as daughters and wives were raped and young children dashed against walls, an event that would leave 4,000 dead and another 6,000 fleeing for their lives. The savagery of the violence between fellow citizens was likely a culmination of different reasons such as the retaliation for the perceived and real oppression of the poor by the wealthy, or pure greed and bloodlust. And Diodorus comments so eloquently about the horror of it all. Quote, for men who by day in the streets and throughout the marketplace were bold to butcher those who had done no harm, need no writer to set forth what they did at night, when by themselves in the homes, and how they conducted themselves towards orphaned maidens, and toward women who were bereft of any to defend them, and had fallen to the absolute power of their direst enemies. End quote. While unmistakably a cruel act, 
Agathocles had merely demonstrated that he was not above the systematic purging of political enemies that had so often occurred in Syracusan politics, and what he himself had been subjected to as a young man during his first exile from the city. But by the dawn of the third day, Agathocles recalled his men and ordered the meeting of the general assembly. In front of them he defended his actions, claiming he had purged the city of those who sought to destroy the civil liberties of the citizens, and, as a gesture of goodwill, a move that would become staple of many a dictator, Agathocles unclasped his military cloak and put on the garb of the common man, claiming he would excuse himself from power. This played in the hands of those who had themselves been part of the purges, and they begged him to reconsider and restore order to the now disheveled city. While initially refusing the offer to hold on to power, he reluctantly agreed, on the condition that he alone would be in control, so as to not be held accountable for the misdeeds of fellow administrators or assembly members. A blatant lie, but one that was immediately swallowed up, and Agathocles would be given the position of strategos autocrator, a general with supreme power, which his propagandists like to describe as protector of the peace. Whether he operated with so blatant a title, or by putting a veil over his position, it didn't really matter. Agathocles would now be the uncontested master of Syracuse, marking the beginning of a reign lasting nearly three decades. For now, he may have been content with being a tyrant, but with the threat of Carthage ever-present, Agathocles may have seen the opportunity to move from tyrant to king, and what is a king without a kingdom, whether in Sicily or abroad in Africa? Among the first acts of Agathocles as a tyrant was to fulfill his end of the bargain to appease his supporters. Taking the now vacant, if bloody, properties of the former oligarchs, he distributed them among the peoples while also abolishing their debts. One wonders how those debts would have been claimed anyways since most of the debtors might have been killed, but no matter. The brutality of the purges was tempered by the mildness of his immediate reign, and the distribution of land was one of the many methods to which Agathocles had masterfully used to engender himself with the people, thus further securing his rule. Polybius notes the transformation of Agathocles from a cruel usurper to a mild and gentle disposition. His tyranny was remarkably unusual in how he presented himself as merely one of the common man. He didn't live lavishly and indulge himself in fineries like silks or gold, and he actually dispensed with the personal bodyguards that so often rankled Greek citizenry. His efforts beyond the radical reforms also extended to reinvigorating the economy of Syracuse by careful observation of the public treasury, but also the expanded production of arms, armor, and the Syracusan fleet. Of course, Agathocles' mildness did not necessarily extend to his foreign policy and the increased military production was also indicative of a desire to expand his domination across all of Sicily, but the need to also deal with the remaining threats to his rule, i.e. the surviving oligarchs and the Carthaginians. One of his first conflicts erupted between Syracuse and Messini in the northeastern part of Sicily. In 315, the Messinians requested that the return of a fort that had been previously been taken by Agathocles, who demanded 30 talents of silver as repayment. The Messinians did just that. In return, Agathocles had them surrounded and killed, one of his many acts as an oath-breaker. Messini itself was put under siege, 
since it is very likely that they were hosting many of the refugee oligarchs, but held out on two separate occasions. In the meanwhile, Agathocles' camp was visited by Carthaginian envoys, who declared outright that should he violate any of the treaties laid out by Castorides, he would have their full, undivided attention, indicative of just how concerned the Carthaginians were of the tyrant's actions. Reluctantly, he departed, though he apparently busied himself with the purging of pro-oligarchic factions in the allied city. The attacks on Messini had pushed the exiled oligarchs to build an alliance between the cities of Acragas, Messini, and Gila, and managed to convince an unpopular Spartan prince named Acrotatus to serve as a general, as had Timoleon before him. Unfortunately, Acrotatus was no Xanthippus, and instead was one of the many Spartans who would succumb to their vices once outside of Laconia, and refused to engage with Agathocles. The Spartan prince even did Agathocles a favor by killing his longtime rival Sostratus, who was at the head of the oligarchic alliance. Feeling helpless without Sostratus, the cities turned their fury on Acrotatus and drove him from Sicily in a hail of stones, while deciding to submit to Agathocles in hope for a bloodless end to the war. The resultant treaty, brokered by the Carthaginians, effectively made Agathocles in Syracuse the official head of the Greek cities, east of the modern Platani River effectively two-thirds of the entire island, but anything beyond that would be left to the Carthaginians. Well, a treaty has never stopped Agathocles, and between 314 and 311, he proceeded to conquer the still-hostile Messini and purge Gila of his political enemies in another bloodbath. Between that, cries for help from any remaining oligarchs, and Agathocles' previously underhanded dealings with Hamilcar, the Carthaginian government decided to beef up their efforts against the Syracusan threat by sending a military expedition to the island under Hamilcar, son of Gizgo. Near the modern city of Lakata, Hamilcar seized a position of one of the local hills and hunkered down, while Agathocles, concerned about the threat of the Carthaginians on both his territory and the morale and loyalty of allied cities who might feel inclined to desert, decided to push for an attack. Hamilcar's forces numbered somewhere around 40,000, comprised of various African and Greek mercenaries, whereas Agathocles' army was smaller, at around 30,000, separated from each other by a large river known as the Himera, that served as a site for many a battle between the Greeks and Carthaginians. Neither side would commit to crossing the river in earnest, though raiding parties certainly took their chances, and in one instance Agathocles set up an ambush. Initially succeeding, he was over-eager in pursuing the fleeing Carthaginians, and pushed forward with his entire army, locked in a bloody struggle for control of one of the Carthaginian fortifications. Faced with defeat, Hamilcar took the initiative and set an entire division of slingers from the Balearic Islands to thrash the unaware Greeks. In the hail of stones and the resulting broken bones and smashed teeth, Agathocles' army began to panic, and when a ship of Libyan reinforcements showed up out of the blue, they panicked and retreated nearly five miles, giving the Carthaginians the day and leaving over 7,000 dead Syracusans in their wake. In his defeat, Agathocles holed up in the city of Gila, while Hamilcar decided to avoid a protracted siege by working his way into the heart of Greek territory, taking a number of cities by sword and submission, before Agathocles finally gave up and returned back to Syracuse in 310, licking his wounds with the Carthaginians outright besieging the city with a naval blockade. Clearly, the Carthaginians were not going to let up on Agathocles. At least, not while he was still in Sicily. Hamilcar was an experienced commander, and his mercenaries were experienced fighters. But Agathocles realized that, to win, 
he was going to have to leave the island and unleash a daring campaign against Africa and strike at the city of Carthage itself, the first time any European army would step in the region. The Carthaginian peoples were not required to serve in the army except during times of crisis, and even then they would be woefully unprepared and unexperienced. Agathocles could achieve success by conquering Carthage outright and taking enough plunder and captives to pay for his war from the wealthy territories of North Africa. Or, barring that, it could force the Carthaginian assembly to withdraw Hamilcar from Syracuse and ease the pressure on the Greek cities. For such an ambitious operation, Agathocles was going to need funds and troops, doubly difficult after the disaster at the Himera, and thankfully for him, he was already an experienced man at squeezing blood from a stone. First, he collected the funds by executing political rivals and assuming their estates, along with the lifting of treasure from religious temples and forced loans from unlucky merchants. Using this wealth, he provided the means to pay for a large army of mercenaries from all over the Greek world, Etruscans, Celts, Italians, Greeks, and even freed slaves, enough for about 13,500 men, along with his two sons, Archigathus and Heraclides. On the home front, he put his brother Antander and a mercenary captain named Ariminian in charge, and to ensure the loyalty of the Syracusans, about 3,500 of the forces were taken from the citizens to act as both soldiers and as hostages, lest anyone get any funny ideas about capitulating to Hamilcar. All of this was done in secret, and on August 14th of 310 BC, Agathocles' fleet of 60 vessels broke through the Carthaginian blockade. We narrowed it down to such a specific date because the day afterwards an eclipse occurred which terrified the Greek sailors, believing the eclipse to be a portent of doom. Naturally, like any good commander, Agathocles was able to rationalize it by claiming it would have only been a bad omen if it occurred on the day they departed, and so it was actually in their favor because it meant doom for the Carthaginians. In about six days, the fleet reached the coast of ancient Libya, narrowly skirting a Carthaginian vessel that was minutes from boarding their ships. Having landed somewhere in Cape Bon in northeastern Tunisia, the distance between Agathocles and Carthage was something around 110 kilometers or 70 miles, but on hand he only had with him 50 talents, roughly two weeks worth of pay for an army his size. Agathocles' plan was banking on the desperation of the soldiers to push forward and live off the plundered Carthaginian settlements for supplies and booty. And while 13,000 men was nothing to balk at, they were going to need extra troops to deal with Carthage's armies and from attrition. The native peoples that were either allied with or dominated by the Carthaginians, those such as the Libyans and Numidians, could potentially be taken into Gathocles' service and bolster his own army. So, like Alexander the Great at the Dardanelles, Agathocles torched the boats he came across in, symbolically dedicating them to the goddess Demeter and Kor as an offering while also pragmatically forcing his men to either fight or die. There would be no retreat. Bolstered by necessity and through the promise of treasure, the Syracusan army pushed through and pillaged a number of wealthy cities, including that of Tunis, which was only 20 kilometers away from Carthage. The Carthaginian citizens were absolutely petrified, unaccustomed to being threatened on such a scale, and believing that the presence of the Greeks meant that Hamilcar and his army were dead. Summoning a vast army of conscripts, mercenaries, and allies, roughly 35,000 in number, the Carthaginian forces were led by two figures named Hanno and Bomilcar, which wasn't the wise decision in hindsight since both were rivals in the Carthaginian assembly, 
but nevertheless, they sought to confront Agathocles near Tunis. Despite outnumbering Agathocles over two to one, they were untested, and the line was divided where Bomilcar controlled the left wing, and Hanno on the right, with the Carthaginian sacred band, the most experienced forces of their army. To compensate for his lack of manpower, Agathocles made up for it in psychological warfare, secretly releasing owls among his own army to give them the belief that Athena was on their side, and to fool the Carthaginians, he took the rowers and sailors into his force, armed them with sticks and shield covers to give the illusion of a larger force. While his son Archagathus was given control of the right wing and the cavalry, Agathocles needed to oversee the left wing and make sure they could break through the sacred band. The battle began with the Carthaginian chariots being sent out, but like Alexander at Gaugamela and Xenophon at Kunaxa, chariots were old hat, and the disciplined phalanx simply opened lanes to let them harmlessly pass by. The Carthaginian cavalry met a similar fate, and the following attack by the infantry initially had some promise, with the sacred band performing up to snuff, as expected. Hanno appears to have become too overconfident and pushed himself too deeply in the Syracusan line, where he met his demise through a flurry of missile and spear wounds. According to Diodorus, Bomilcar had purposefully allowed the right wing to overextend itself in order to facilitate Hanno's death and dominate the political scene back in Carthage. And when word spread among the now terrified troops, Bomilcar was satisfied and retreated back to the city. Agathocles' victory at the Battle of Tunis was a resounding success from both a military and political perspective. While the vast majority of Carthaginians managed to escape the battlefield, the fact that Carthage was defeated so soundly on its home territory would send shockwaves among its allies and vassal states, who would begin to turn on the normally dominant Phoenicians, and either join Agathocles or independently raid and pillage Carthaginian holdings. The Carthaginians, out of despair and the belief that their gods were angry with them, ritualistically sacrificed 200 children in the hopes of salvation. Agathocles himself was able to capitalize on the propagandistic value of his victories, and send a number of newly built ships to Syracuse to present the spoils and news of his conquests in order to bolster the city's resolve against Hamilcar's attacks, while forcing Hamilcar to send home about 5,000 troops as reinforcements. However, Agathocles was not remotely finished. After all, Carthage is one of the most fortified cities in the Mediterranean world, and it was going to take a lot more than just one victory to dominate Africa, and he was going to need more men. Lots of them. As the winter of 310 rolled into the spring of 309, the situation in Africa had not lent itself to a final decisive outcome. Agathocles did not make any progress on besieging the city of Carthage due to its great fortifications and control of the sea, and so he had determined that the best way to bring things to a conclusion was to whittle away their allied support and ravage the countryside further, effectively choking Carthage by its purse strings. To limit his success, he managed to convince at least some Libyan tribes to join in his efforts, but when a successful Carthaginian counterattack retook some of the cities formerly captured by Agathocles, one of the Libyan chiefs decided to swap sides, but was soon captured and killed as the Carthaginians were once again pushed back into their city by Agathocles' counter-counterattack. 
The pillaging aspect had certainly taken a toll on Carthage's ability to pay its troops, and for several years, the gold value of their coinage would plummet, and lesser bronze and silver coins would take their place, nearly bringing them to financial ruin. But the pillaging did not seem to aid the financial arrears of the troops under Agathocles either, and it is likely that he had been purposefully delaying payouts, possibly as an effort to exert greater control over them. Unfortunately, this ended up being a mistake, as a mutiny broke out midway through the year 309 at the city of Tunis, after his son Archagathus had killed a drunken officer for an insult, and the soldiers used the unwillingness of Agathocles to punish his own flesh and blood as an excuse to push their issues regarding back pay, leading them to take the city walls in order to trap the tyrant inside. As he had done nearly ten years prior, Agathocles managed to assert control of the situation by pretending to give up his command as a tyrant, and offered himself for punishment, though the sight of the humility of their general apparently managed to put their concerns to rest, at least for the time being. Though dominance of the Carthaginian countryside had allowed Agathocles a degree of flexibility, the lack of success in retaining native African allies did not bolster his army's numbers that simple attrition would have taken a major toll on. He was going to need more troops. And so, in 308, he relayed a message to the east in Kyrene, where a man named Ophelas, a former companion of Alexander the Great, had been serving as a governor in name under his commander Ptolemy I of Egypt. Agathocles managed to broker some sort of military alliance with Ophelas. In return for 10,000 infantrymen and hundreds of cavalry, Agathocles looked to offer the Macedonian all of his African conquests. No doubt Ophelus was taking a page out of the old Diodohoi handbook, and he immediately seized the opportunity to carve out a kingdom in his own name, with Carthage as the crown jewel. Once he had arrived, Agathocles fed and housed all of the new soldiers with great generosity, then promptly seized the opportunity to accuse Ophelus of plotting against him, followed by a summary execution of the would-be Macedonian king. As backhanded as this was, it was very likely that Ophelas had his own aims in assisting Agathocles, and very well could have done the same thing in return. In any case, the 10,000 soldiers managed to be incredibly valuable to Agathocles' cause, and Carthage itself, having just dealt with a vicious attempted coup by Bomilcar, who was shortly thereafter crucified, was now plunged into even further despair. In 307, the wealthy city Utica was besieged by Agathocles, and in a moment of macabre creativity, the tyrant had tried to discourage a counterattack on his siege equipment by tying captured Utican prisoners to the front facades of his siege towers to act as essentially a human meat shield, forcing their companions to shoot anyways in a vain effort before their city was taken. With Utica fallen and a number of outside cities capitulating, Agathocles was nearly uncontested in his control of Africa. The same cannot be said for Sicily, however. Since Agathocles had departed in August of 310, Syracuse had been under pressure from Hamilcar's talented generalship and clever tactics. Diodorus recounts how Hamilcar recovered the bronze prows from Agathocles' burned ships, and tried to get the Greeks to capitulate by showing them as proof of the expedition's failure, though Agathocles' victory ships after the Battle of Tunis nipped that plan in the bud. Tradition says that Agathocles' brother Antander, who was left in charge of the city, was allegedly not of the same moral constitution as his sibling, and was willing to surrender, though recently recovered papyrus fragments suggest that this reputation might be undeserved. Still, Hamilcar was in control of a vast army, and thanks to his generous nature to prisoners of war and civilians, he was receiving defectors day after day. But in 309, Hamilcar had attempted an all-out assault on the city itself, under the impression from an oracle that he would dine in Syracuse. 
but the attack went horribly wrong, and the Greek defenders managed to get the jump on the Carthaginian forces. Hamilcar himself was captured and tortured to death by the citizens of Syracuse, who then cut off his head and shipped it to Agathocles in Africa, who proudly and prominently displayed it on a spike for all of the fellow Carthaginians to see. But Agathocles' rule did not just earn the enmity of Carthage. A Syracusan named Dinocrates was a supporter of the old oligarchy and tried recruiting followers to take advantage of the city's weakness. Along with Dinocrates was the rival city of Acragas in the south, and under the generalship of Xenodicus, they too tried asserting their dominance over Greek Sicily. Though Acragas would quiet down after Xenodicus's defeat by a Syracusan army, the situation was precarious enough to recall Agathocles from Africa in 307, who was comfortable enough to leave Archagathus in charge after the victory over Utica. Dinocrates was easily his greatest threat, gathering a vast army of over 20,000 under the banner of freedom and liberty from the domination of Agathocles, which forced the tyrant to withdraw and build a number of alliances to compensate for his lack of manpower. At the same time, his commanders managed to once again rout and defeat Xenodicus, forcing Acragas to submit entirely, and Dinocrates seems to have not pressed forward. In order to make sure any funny business wasn't going on, Agathocles also had 500 political opponents in Syracuse murdered after he invited them to speak their minds once he supplied them with wine at a banquet designed to weed out any dissidents. It was good that Agathocles had returned to Africa within the year, because although Archagathos initially achieved some measure of success with the Numidians, Carthage had taken time to consolidate its forces before launching a campaign of divide and conquer. Many Syracusan units and fortifications were systematically isolated and wiped out, and the pressure began to build in the camps as money and supplies were rapidly diminishing by the day, as Agathocles stepped off the boat. At the moment, he managed to restore some order, but he knew that his time was running out, and a decisive victory must be won. So, confronting the Carthaginians head-on at a numerical and topographical disadvantage, the exhausted Syracusan army barely managed to hold it together before being pushed back to their camps, losing 3,000 men in the process. However, in one of those weird twists of fate, the Carthaginians had apparently decided to sacrifice their prisoners by burning them alive as tribute to their gods. As the captives were being led to the large funeral pyre, a gust of wind had scattered the flames and embers among the tents and reed huts of their camp, torching the entire area and causing a mass panic among the Carthaginians who burned to death as they tried to secure their valuables. This wasn't helped as a large group of deserting Libyans from Agathocles' side approached the chaos, and the Carthaginians mistook them for a Greek army and caused a complete panic and massacre among their own troops. This was doubly odd, as the Greeks saw the orange glow of the now-destroyed Carthaginian camp, along with a moving body of troops, who turned out to be the same Libyans who were fleeing back from the Carthaginians. And under the impression that they were the ones under attack, the army of Agathocles fled for their lives, or were caught up in a great struggle with the Libyans. By the break of dawn, both sides had now completely spent themselves, no doubt bewildered at the circumstances they found themselves in. Even though nearly 5,000 Carthaginians were killed overnight, Agathocles was now totally unable to continue his war abroad with such a dearth of troops, while Carthage was still able to recover, and would likely subject him to the same fate as the unlucky captives should he even try to offer terms of surrender. Ever the opportunist, Agathocles thought his best choice of exit would be to sneak away in the cover of darkness without the knowledge of his own soldiers. Diodorus and Justin differ on what exactly happens next, 
as Diodorus claims that in his paranoia, Agathocles abandoned Archigantus and Heraclides under the pretense that they plotted against him, but Justin claims that they were lost in the dark and were separated. Based on the fact that we have little evidence suggesting any prior mistrust towards his sons, and that Agathocles even risked his own death by not punishing Archigantus earlier, I tend to lean towards the latter. Regardless, both sons were murdered by the furious troops, who settled their own peace accords with the Carthaginians by either paying for their freedom, joining the Carthaginian army to serve as mercenaries, or by crucifixion, should they hold out. By Agathocles' return to Sicily in 306, the African campaign had achieved its initial objectives in taking the pressure off Syracuse, though it ended ignominiously after Carthage proved it was able to recover from their defeats. Still, the campaign was an unprecedented feat, and a treaty would be made later that year that would restore the status quo in Sicily, whereby the island would be effectively bisected by the Halicus River, along with Agathocles receiving a few hundred talents worth of silver and wheat as an incentive. While the Carthaginians were no longer putting the pressure on the Syracusans, Agathocles still would have to deal with the likes of Dinocrates back home, and also to ease his transformation from power from a tyrant to a king. The remaining years of Agathocles' reign after the African campaign are rather poorly documented compared to his earlier career, unfortunately due to the loss of Diodorus's chronicles after the Battle of Ipsus in 301. Upon his return from Africa, Agathocles immediately set forth to ensure that his defeats by the Carthaginians were not going to be taken advantage of by rebels like Dinocrates. At the city of Segesta, he demanded money and soldiers to replace what was lost, and when they refused, he put the city to the torch and committed horrific acts of brutality, which are honestly so graphic I don't think there's anything to be gained from repeating them. But the end result was slavery and plunder taken on a mass scale. When he learned of his son's deaths at the hands of the soldiers, the families of the Syracusans who remained in Africa were put to death as punishment. Such oppressive responses compelled one of his generals to go over to Dinocrates' side, an act that pushed the normally strong-willed Agathocles to even offer a negotiated surrender of his status as a tyrant, though Dinocrates refused outright to grant any sort of leniency, and it was unlikely that Agathocles was actually going to go through with it if it had been accepted. It also must be noted that Dinocrates never had the intention of going through the effort to restore democracy or an oligarchy in Syracuse, instead seeking to take the tyranny for himself by conquering the city. After finally making peace with Carthage, his full attention could be turned towards dealing with Dinocrates, and in 305, the two clashed at the Battle of Torgium. Even though his army was numerically inferior, Agathocles' charisma and espionage allowed him to whittle away at the morale of the rebel forces, and Dinocrates was defeated once a large portion switched sides in the middle of the fighting. Shockingly, Agathocles was not only merciful, but he actually employed Dinocrates in his service, who would remain loyal until the tyrant's death many years afterwards. Syracuse, and by extension Greek Sicily, was now under his control. Compared to Agathocles' relative isolation during his rise to power and the invasion of Africa, he had begun to involve himself heavily in the Hellenistic world. It is certain that by 306 BC, Agathocles had now styled himself properly as a king, rather than just a tyrant. While he didn't wear a diadem, 
perhaps preferring a wreath due to his male pattern baldness, he did wear the royal purple garments that would befit a king while in Africa, and his soldiers regarded it specifically as a royal garb. His contact with Ophelis in 308 was his first formal introduction to the Diodohoi, and no doubt the influence of Antigonus Monophthalmos and the other successors of Alexander officially declaring themselves as king in 306 compelled Agathocles to do the same. His coinage is indicative of this change in ideology as well, the earliest specimens under his rule merely reflecting his status as strategos autocrator, but later specimens demonstrate the title of basileos, specifically designating him as a king. Author Ephraim Zambon makes the argument that Agathocles' imagery on his coins, celebrating his African campaigns, was specifically designed to pay homage to Alexander the Great, based on the premise that Alexander's hostility to Carthage and the alleged last plans to conquer North Africa made Agathocles a worthy successor as much as any of the Diadohoi. Some authors don't necessarily agree with this interpretation, but there is also evidence that the depiction of a youthful Agathocles with long locks of hair on the face of his coinage is definitely Alexandrian in nature. Whether his kingship should be classified as specifically Hellenistic, the likes that could be seen with the Ptolemies, Seleucids, or the Antigonids, or as a natural progression of the Sicilian tyrant has been debated for quite some time. Perhaps it was a natural development of the tyranny that merely aped the imagery of the other Hellenistic kings once he came into contact with them, so as to be on the same level of influence. Part of this development was likely spurred on when Agathocles had thrust himself into the affairs of the Diodohoi, largely as a byproduct of his attempts to expand his power into southern Italy, which he had successfully done by defeating the Italian Brutians. In the year 300, the people of the island Corsaira in the Adriatic Sea had contacted Agathocles to step into their conflict with the current king of Macedon, Cassander I, and when he scattered the Macedonian fleet, he appears to have taken control of the island for himself considering it personal property that he could dispense as part of a dowry for the marriage of his daughter Lanassa to King Pyrrhus of Epiros. His insertion of himself into the web of marriage alliances of the Hellenistic dynasties certainly gives the impression that he considered himself as just one of the guys. While Ptolemy I gave him the hand of a stepdaughter named Theoxena, Demetrius Polyarchites appears to have not given him much consideration. As when asked of his opinion of his fellow kings, the taker of cities merely referred to Agathocles as Lord of the Isles. But this opinion didn't necessarily stop him from allying with Agathocles and taking Corsaira after Lanassa had left Pyrrhus sometime around 293 to marry him instead. Despite the violence and near-constant warfare, Syracuse was demonstrating that it could recover and even prosper under Agathocles' rule. Archaeological evidence demonstrates that the wealth of the city was bolstered in some regards. Agathocles himself constructed a number of temples and buildings that beautified it, such as the Hall of the Sixty Couches, a luxurious dining center capable of hosting hundreds of people, though it apparently was struck down by lightning due to its ostentatiousness. But his vision of empire truly never left. His projections into Greek Italy and the alliances with Demetrius and Ptolemy had been part of his plan for another African conquest. But... Fate had other ideas in mind. In the late 290s and early 280s, Agathocles began to suffer what is thought to be cancer of the mouth, painfully rotting away his jaw and putting his health into serious jeopardy. At the same time, attempts to ensure a dynastic succession by the promotion of one of his sons, Agathocles the Younger, had ended in failure when Archagathus the Younger, Agathocles' grandson by way of his son Archagathus, had murdered Agathocles Jr., Knowing that civil war would tear apart his surviving family, he had sent Theoxena home to Egypt with his infant sons, 
and instead of letting Archagathus Jr. take the throne, Agathocles decreed on his deathbed that democracy would be restored to the city. Though, like so many times in Sicilian history, another tyranny soon followed. Then, in 289 BC, the tyrant turned king of Sicily died at the age of 72, after ruling Syracuse for 28 years. The career of Agathocles has led to polarizing opinions of the man between scholars of old and new. On the aftermath of his death, several of his statues and monuments were pulled down by his former subjects, but many authors do not dispute the beauty and prosperity of Syracuse at the time. His assumption of kingship, the first Sicilian Greek to do so, would inspire later kings and would-be rulers of Sicily, like Hero II and Pyrrhus of Epiros. The man himself was capable of enlightened despotism that resulted in a golden age for Syracuse after the war with Carthage. Yet, he was prone to acts of savagery and cruelty to fuel his ambitions and desires, much to the shock of authors like Diodorus. The 15th-16th century Italian political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli was impressed by Agathocles' political astuteness, but was also disturbed by his willingness to commit terrible atrocities on his own people, and never fully considers him a quote-unquote excellent man, as he has only achieved power, but not glory. Though the African campaigns of Agathocles did not result in the African empire he may have hoped for, the legacy of such an ambitious operation would be felt for many decades afterwards. While Carthage had certainly been defeated in Sicily many times before, never had any Greek proven that Carthage could be beaten on her own soil, revealing a vulnerability of the Phoenician Empire that would be exploited by later invaders, such as Marcus Atilius Regulus in the First Punic War, and, more successfully, by Scipio Africanus in the Second. According to Polybius, when asked about whom he believed were the greatest statesmen, Scipio is said to have responded with Agathocles and Dionysius of Sicily, the men who inspired him to victory over the likes of Carthage and Hannibal Barca. So ends our discussion on Agathocles of Syracuse. I hope you enjoyed this lengthy little episode, though I didn't necessarily plan it to be that way. In any case, if you like what you've just listened to and want to support the show, consider subscribing to me on the platform of your choice and leaving a review about what your thoughts are. You can also support the show by donating to my coffee page or by following me on my social media accounts like Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Next time we meet, we will be discussing the history and society of Carthage, the forgotten Mediterranean Empire. So, until then, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>